It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I want this parliament to become more modern, more efficient, more effective, but also sometimes more courageous to speak, not wait too long before we have to say something, get majorities quicker, talk to everybody. And I think we can do that with a united voice. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Political Europe in Brussels. And you just heard a voice we may be hearing a fair bit more of in the years to come. That was Roberta Metsola, the new president of the European Parliament. Soon after she was elected on Tuesday, the Conservative MEP from Malta, the youngest person ever to hold the Parliament presidency, spoke exclusively to Politico's Maya Dillabaum, and you'll hear that interview later in the podcast. But first, let's talk about Emmanuel Macron's big speech in the European Parliament, as well as the latest in the Ukraine crisis, and Angela Merkel's next job with our podcast panel. So the core crew are uh, back together again uh, this week. Reem is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, everyone. Matt is in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. And our executive producer, Christina, is watching over us as ever on the Zoom call. So it really is the the core gang. Um, So let's dive into a few of the big uh, topics of the week and perhaps start in Strasbourg, where Emmanuel Macron today, we're recording on Wednesday evening, uh, gave a big speech to the European Parliament. Madame la Présidente, Mesdames, Messieurs les Vice-Présidentes et Vice-Présidents de la Commission, Mesdames, Messieurs les Commissaires, Setting out his vision uh, for France's six-month presidency of the Council of the EU. That's the kind of, you know, period in the kind of legislative driving seat, if you like. And of course, uh, that coincides also with a French presidential election slap bang in the middle of it in April. And uh, the two things kind of collided in uh, this speech and in the debate around the speech. Reem, uh, you were watching. What did you make of it? What kind of stood out to you from the from the speech and from the debate? I mean, we were definitely expecting all of the French MEPs from the opposition parties to to go hard against Macron, and they certainly delivered on that. Uh, What was really striking was the positioning of the Elysee Palace that sort of feigned being uh, outraged by the manipulation and weaponization of this in order to serve, uh, obviously, the French presidential candidates, uh, it's very hypocritical. That's one thing that has really struck me, which is that the positioning of the Élysée on this EU presidency has been quite 
hypocritical from the beginning, refusing to just acknowledge that actually, of course, uh, this is part of the presidential campaign. Of course, it has a domestic national politics dimension, because, of course, Macron has always positioned as the most Europhile, pro-Europe candidate politician in the country. And yet they continue to want us to believe that, in fact, no, they're super clean on this. And he is not thinking about his re-election campaign as our listeners might know, he still hasn't declared that he is running for re-election, but there is absolutely no doubt that he will in coming weeks, in fact. Yeah. So, I mean, this is it. On the one hand, you've got the Elysee insisting, oh, listen, we're just doing pure EU presidency here, nothing to do with the election campaign. And then in the parliament, you had people insisting that they were also concerned about Europe and the big issues and the greater good, but then getting absolutely stuck in on the French domestic election campaign themselves, not just French politicians. We saw people such as the uh, French uh, Green Yannick Jadot step up and, and put the boot into Macron on the domestic front, if you like. But even Manfred Weber, the German uh, leader of the European People's Party uh, group in the parliament, deciding to wade in as well and noting that uh, Les Républicains, part of his party family, had uh, nominated Valérie Pécresse. Let me say this as an EPP politician that now is Valérie Pécresse, we have a real competition in the centre of the landscape. And expressing the hope that, you know, that France might uh, elect a woman president for the first time. And maybe, let's see about the French voters, uh, we will make, uh, the French voters will make also gender balance a reality, that they vote the first time for a French uh, uh, female pro-European candidate. So, so it felt like everybody was getting involved and then the Greens seemed to start fighting among themselves about whether this was appropriate to get so domestic and sort of down and dirty in, in domestic French politics when the great uh, European good was meant to be being discussed. Matt, I don't think you had the chance to um, watch all of this in all its glory, but uh, any thoughts? Are you kidding me? I was I was glued to my TV screen all all day. Yeah, I'm sure it was rolling coverage in Germany. I imagine. You know, I I think the reality here though is is that a lot of people are only going to see about 15 or 30 seconds of the speech. People outside of the Brussels bubble, and I think to them, Macron will come across, you know, as a very sympathetic figure, as a true European. He was flying the flag there, and he had all of the. Accoutrements that you need uh, in in the background with the flags and what have you. So I think that overall he'll come across as looking very statesmanlike. And I think to most Europeans listening to it, this stuff that he said wasn't really that uh, controversial. You know, especially uh, he even addressed uh, strategic autonomy, which is a controversial subject. But uh, you know, he makes it sound pretty logical talking about that it shouldn't be to uh, defy other powers, but to ensure the independence of Europe in this world of violence. So I think that's something that most people could sign on to. Yeah, but even on that point, that's one thing that actually struck me, which is that in the current context with the ever-increasing military tension around Ukraine, Russia mobilizing the way it has, um, he wasn't able to come up with a very specific, concrete action that the Europeans and the EU could actually take. 
Right, Phil is in Ream because he did make a kind of that was meant to be the sort of headline of the speech, right? The the newsy bit with all the the tension over Ukraine with, with Russia still with a hundred thousand troops on the border. He was obviously trying to kind of intervene in the debate around that. What was he actually putting forward? So he said that the Europeans amongst themselves must agree on what he termed a stability and security order and then take that stability and security order sorry it's a mouthful but that's literally what he said take it to their allies in nato share it with them and then propose it as a basis for negotiation with russia what does that entail that is new no one knows so far yeah but i think this speech that's the that was the point i'm trying to make that it really for him was more about optics than anything substantive and to your point matt he also made this proposal of that he wants the right to abortion to be explicitly inscribed in the fundamental rights charter. Notamment pour être plus explicite sur la protection de l'environnement ou la reconnaissance du droit à l'avortement. Ouvrons. You know, a day after the European Parliament elected as its new president, Roberta Mazzola, who is known to be anti-abortion. It was also a lot of messaging for his own domestic audience right before he enters the re-election campaign. And it's a little hypocritical, again, its positioning and its messaging, because his own group, the Renew group in the European Parliament, supported Metsola and supported her election. Mm. So if he really had a problem with her position on abortion, they perhaps shouldn't have done that. Mm. And we'll hear a bit more from Roberta Metzola herself on that topic a bit later. But if we go back to Russia and Ukraine for a moment, uh, Matt, um, as I say, we're recording Wednesday evening. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is expected in Berlin, where you are, tomorrow. And again, it looks like an attempt to try and make sure the Americans and the Europeans are all on the same page when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, and particularly in this case, the Americans and the Germans. How far apart do you think they are and how likely, to what extent are they likely to come together on a kind of common line here? I don't think that they're far apart in terms of their view of the situation. They both want Russia to pull the troops back. They don't want a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Certainly, everyone supports the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And yet, I think the question of how to get there, how to handle this situation, they are pretty far apart because the Germans, for example, and the Germans in particular, are very worried about antagonizing the Russians uh, for example, by threatening to throw Russia out of the SWIFT agreement. This is an international payment system that companies around the world use to shift money from one country to another. Very important for international commerce. And that would be a huge blow to the Russian economy. And the Germans have said, basically, this would just be you know, the uh, nuclear option, and we shouldn't even consider doing it. The problem is if you take something like that off the table and tell the Russians that you're taking it off the table, it gives you a weaker negotiating position by definition. And they have also been noncommittal, let's say, about whether they would suspend the North Stream 2 gas pipeline that has been built between Russia and Germany under the Baltic Sea if there is an invasion. Mm. Well, um, let's see how that uh, develops. Meantime, I just wanted to finish up with a slightly lighter note. 
We read today that Angela Merkel had been approached for a United Nations job and she's turned it down. Now, the job in question was to lead a panel and the panel was an advisory board on global public goods such as oceans and the ozone layer. Um, now, no offence to global public goods, but my personal view is if you want to get Angela Merkel, you know, you've really got to offer something uh, a bit more top level. This just didn't seem to me like the kind of thing she'd go for as someone, you know, one of the world's leading uh, former leaders, if you like, someone who was Chancellor of Germany for 16 years. So I wondered what job might appeal to her, what uh, kind of uh, job she might end up doing next. Does either of you have any ideas, any suggestions for uh, next job for Angela Merkel? Now she's had a few months of retirement. I mean, I think actually retired fisherwoman hanging out with her fisherman friends from the lob, you know? <laughs> There's this very famous picture of her yeah. with fishermen in like the Baltic parts, right, in 1990, that kind of is one of the foundational photos of her of her political myth yes kind of part of the merkel myth if you like yeah and i think the woman has served enough has put up with so much of the world's issues have has had to manage them has contributed to humanity let her just rest and like enjoy the the years she still has you know right i mean 16 years german chancellor that is you know that's a good innings as they say i mean there is no obligation on her to do anything else matt what do you think she might fancy or, or might be good at well, unfortunately, I, I believe they've uh, torn down that shack on the pier where that picture was uh, was taken. <laughs> but I think, you know, going back to what we were discussing earlier, she's a fluent Russian speaker. And I would say that in those 16 years, uh, she did, you know, more for Russia than maybe any German chancellor in the history of the country. So, you know, with Vladimir Putin, uh planning his own retirement, you know, I would think that uh, Merkel would be a good candidate to uh, move back to the mother country. <laughs> to and... be Russian president? Is that what you're uh, suggesting? Yeah. Take over that, from that, Putin? That's what I'm suggesting. Oh, that's pretty twisted. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. Well, there you go. That would be a way to bring East and West uh, together um, in some ways. I've, I have a, another a kind of different suggestion. I think Manchester United manager. <laughs> I think uh, nobody has been able to do that job. It is really managing a coalition. You know, you have all these cliques um, and there's a big kind of trend towards German managers. Everybody loves a bit of gegenpressing, although I would say she's more of a kind of counterattacker. But I do think... Are they owned by Russians? They are actually one of the, one of the English clubs who are not owned by Russians. They're owned by Americans. Yeah. Um, but I do think uh, the only problem is they are, of course, the Reds. But that would fit in with your idea, Matt, that uh, you know there could be a Russian connection there because obviously she, uh, she played for the other side, if you like, the Christian Democrats rather than the Social Democrats in, in Germany. But that's my idea. A big trend for German managers. So, you know, bring in the best. Bring in uh, Angela Merkel. I sincerely hope Angela Merkel yeah, is not listening I, to us. I'm sure she's a regular listener in her... Uh, where is it that she has her little dacha mat uh, outside Berlin? Uh, in the Uckermark. In the Uckermark. I'm pretty sure it's the highlight of her week. Anyway, there we go. We've given her a few suggestions, done her a favour. OK, uh, Reem and Matt are going to join us again briefly later as we revive recommendations for uh, things to watch or listen to or read. But for now, Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Just before we move on, a couple of quick things I thought you might be interested in. If you enjoyed our chat about Emmanuel Macron's debate, a big speech in the European Parliament, uh, we wrote a kind of alternative preview to the speech 
talking about the things that he wouldn't say. Quite good fun, but also draws on a lot of expertise from across our newsroom, so we'll include a link to that in our show notes. And a couple of our other colleagues, Lawrence Serolus and Cornelius Hirsch, and others have been working away on a very interesting project, crunching data about the European Parliament's terms so far as it reaches the halfway point. And they've dug out a lot of stories from that data, some fun ones, some more serious ones, and we'll include a link to that package as well in our show notes. Now, coming up and staying with the European Parliament, we'll help you get to know its brand new president, Roberta Metzola. That's in just a moment. Stay with us. And now a quick message from Politico Europe's marketing team. Are you a student or a young professional interested in EU politics? You might even consider to make it your career. Then join us online on February 2nd and 3rd at Politico's EU Studies and Career Fair. You'll be able to exchange with companies and universities looking for talents just like you. Search for euscf.politico.eu. That's euscf.politico.eu and discover opportunities for your future. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Roberta Metzola, 458 votes. That's the sound of a little bit of EU history. Portuguese MEP Pedro Silva Pereira announcing the result of the vote that elected Roberta Metzola as the new president of the European Parliament. As you'll remember, the previous president, David Sassoli of Italy, died earlier this month, shortly before the end of his term in office. Now, at the age of 43, Metzola becomes the youngest ever president of the parliament. She's also the first Maltese to serve in the post. In fact, the first Maltese in such a senior position in any major EU institution. She's also only the third woman to lead the European Parliament in its history. Mitsola hails from her country's Nationalist Party, which is part of the centre-right European People's Party Alliance. 
As a politician, she's made her name by focusing on topics including migration, where she's called for refugees to be relocated around the EU rather than all being kept in their country of arrival. In short, she calls for a holistic approach to migration. In other words, one that's not just focused on border security. I think cooperation is key. I think solidarity is key. I think we should start to see more of it because, after all, this is a European Union challenge which requires a European Union response. But, of course, the EU has been unable to agree on a broad overhaul of its immigration and asylum policies. You'll hear a bit more from Metzola on that in just a moment. She's also made a name for herself by pushing for a strong EU stance on the rule of law in member countries and campaigning against corruption. But it's her position on abortion that was the most controversial aspect of her bid for the presidency of the parliament. Her home country is overwhelmingly Catholic and it's the only EU member country where abortion remains illegal. Mitsola herself has opposed several reports and resolutions in the European Parliament calling for women to have access to safe abortion services and to define abortion as a human right. Mitsola's response to criticism of her stance is that, as Parliament President, she'll represent the position of the Parliament as a whole on abortion and not her personal views. To get to know Roberta Metzola a little better, the politician and the person, our own Maya de la Baum caught up with her soon after her election on Tuesday in the bustling corridors of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. And Maya began by asking her why she first got involved in politics. For me, uh, it was a big decision and uh, that was being discussed in my country, Malta, as to whether we would join the European Union or not. Uh, the society was very much divided between those who wanted and those who didn't. Uh, and uh, I was part of the very active group of law students uh, that thought that it would do us a world of good uh, for a country like ours to aim towards higher standards, better quality of life, stronger values and principles. So I joined that movement and I've never looked back. And, and why the Nationalist Party in Malta? It was the party that was in favour of joining the European Union, uh, a party that sought uh, always higher, higher visions for the country, that never was limited by the size of our country, but very much in, invested in the resources, its people uh, and its brains, so to speak, our children, education. And I was, let's say, uh, a recipient of that, uh, of that vision by understanding that this was the best thing that could have happened for our country. What ensued was a very, very long, difficult, closely fought uh, campaign. But I must say also that looking back and looking at us now, uh, this is a country that has matured extremely well uh, as a member of the European Union, both in terms of, of, of pushing, putting its voice on the table, pushing forward its own agenda, but also making sure that citizens across the whole European Union can benefit, including those mm -hmm. who come from my country, of the same uh, laws and rights. And, and what, very simply, what do you like about politics? Well, I like doing this. Huh? I like, <laughs> actually, the best, the best thing is, is knocking on somebody's door mm -hmm. and convincing that person, sometimes very sceptical, mm -hmm. to vote for you uh, and giving that person a reason. It's not just I'm elected and therefore I will wait five years until I come back uh, to ask for your vote again. 
when you have a very representative democracy like the one where I come from, uh, that means that you spend your time needing to earn each and every vote. And I think it is that kind of style of politics, of people understanding people's wishes and how you can deliver and if you can't you tell them that you are honest look them in the eye and say this i can do but this i can't is a style of politics that we i think and i brought here into this parliament and have been managing my work uh, over this past nine years yeah and what do you see are your successes and failures until now I think one of the biggest disappointments was that after spending years uh, bringing majorities, very difficult majorities in the House on Migration, that was blocked in the Council. Perhaps me, a little bit more naively some years ago, would have said, no, this is something that is governed by qualified majority, majority will be pushed to the Council, no one country would be blocking this. I underestimated the difficulty that that would have. And I now perhaps look at that with renewed impetus to try harder and to have a parliament that can be stronger and that can give its members who are negotiating legislation, because we cannot forget we are a legislative body that can negotiate legislation with all the resources and the facilities that this institution can give them. It is very difficult to be a rapporteur on a legislative file when you have uh, a number of lines you need to safeguard and other institutions have their own. You need to learn to negotiate, you need to learn to be strong, and with a parliament and institution that can give you that backing, that is what I would like to turn from maybe not a failure but a frustration into hopefully a success. So how would you judge a successful presidency of the parliament? First of all, I would judge this presidency uh, from one that would have uh, started proper institutional reforms, internal reforms. How uh, do conflict of competences between committee chairs work? How do members work together in order to create the majorities needed? How to make sure that proportionately represented groups are around that same table in order to push forward? Because every member of this house was elected by its citizens and I need to give a reason to every that or every one of those members in 2024 to justify why they should be re-elected. So I want this parliament to become more modern, more efficient, more effective, but also sometimes more courageous to speak not wait too long before we have to say something. Get majorities quicker. Talk to everybody. And I think we can do that with a united voice. We have done that on different issues. Belarus, for example. When you have uh, um, questions at the external border of the European Union, we can be very consistent, coherent and concrete. I would like that to be a, happen a little bit more often in different areas. Mm -hmm. The parliament, I think, suffers a little bit from a lack of visibility. What would you do to make it more important and more visible also? Yeah, I, I wouldn't sort of qualify importance. I would start by saying that this institution is directly elected, which means that every member has a mandate. And that has to be respected because that means that everybody has a project and that project be it what it may, needs to be executed, needs to be facilitated, needs to be, needs to be pushed. The visibility is also perhaps natural because of what happened during the pandemic, that uh, there was an inability to do politics as we usually do, uh, and some decisions that should have been taken were pushed back down the line. Legislation suffered, but at the same time we took some very courageous decisions, such as the COVID uh, certificate, the Recovery and Resilience Facility, the Rule of Law Conditionality clauses within the MFF. So I 
I think that it is one what we do, how we do it, and then how we communicate it. I think we should speak to journalists more. I think we should have a more open uh, discussion with people like you, Maya, who represent uh, questions and want to put us on the spot. And that is something that I commit to do. Their visibility comes by itself, but at the same time also we can help ourselves. And it's our responsibility to push that. And, and that's what I committed to do today in my speech. And I think our lot of colleagues in this house, especially new ones, we have so many new members that really have not seen this parliament work. Like I remember it working with 700 people in the chamber, arguing massively, but at the same time having a common ideal in mind. I would like to see that again. Uh, and I look forward to being the one who can hopefully try to bring that uh, to fruition soon. What would be the first measure now that you would implement once you're in the office of the president? Internally, I would try to make it more flexible for committee hearings. I think it, is, it should be more easy for members, for example, young parents, members who cannot travel uh, to Brussels or Strasbourg for meetings, to be able to participate in committee hearings, to be able to vote remotely. But then externally, I have a few projects I would like to start uh, more, like, for example, on digital rights, better visibility in the European Parliament offices. But also I would like to, to start, I need to get approval from my, from my bureau, which is currently being elected, for... Uh, women leadership program in order to encourage young girls and women to look at politics as something that they should aspire to and that I would like to do in all member states where there's still a lot to do. Many people and including MEPs have raised this issue of abortion. I know you are now trained to respond to this question but I think a lot of people ask the question of your own personal views on abortion. What do you tell them now about you? And do you understand why all these headlines say an anti-abortion MEP becomes president of the parliament? My immediate reply to that, beyond the stock reply, is that there is a caricature that has been drawn of me that I myself and nobody who knows me recognizes. And I will need to convince those members who might still have concerns, who might still have questions in this manner. By the way I work, by the fact that I continue to repeat and commit to the position of the Parliament. This Parliament is unambiguous on sexual and reproductive health and rights, and I will be unambiguous. Another more light-hearted question, uh, how do you deal with pressure and stress in general? <laughs> I can't say I don't, right? Do you no. have a special trick? <laughs> well, I have a really good team around me uh, who we have grown up together with. Uh, have been with me since my very first election and we uh, we choose laughter as a de-stress way of surviving but I also have I try at least to make a distinction between my work and my private life I have very strong uh, let's say uh, family upbringing with my sisters I have two sisters who I'm very close to and they actually help me relieve quite a lot of the pressure because they're also under their own uh, individual pressures uh, and I also have very old group uh, for uh, girlfriends uh, who I have about 500 under read messages from them today uh, who have been waiting for this moment and they really helped me. That's how I deal with the pressure. So the last book, podcast or movie you've seen and you've liked a lot <laughs> to change subject. <laughs> so I read The World As It Is by Ben Rhodes over summer 
but last week I listened to a podcast, an audio book, but I haven't finished it yet, of Colin Powell on life and leadership, uh, and because I I wanted to to listen to to Colin Powell saying in my ear what the thirteen rules of of management were, so that's what I am listening to now. I'm not sure I'll finish it, but I am I'm listening to it because I I listen to books more than read them today. Thanks again to Maya for bringing us that conversation from Strasbourg. And since Roberto Metzola offered her recommendations, we thought we'd bring back the podcast panel to see what they've been reading or watching or listening to as the new year gets underway. So, uh, Reem is nodding. What have you got? I've just binge watched season two of Netflix's docuseries Cheer. Oh, and yeah. it's about athletic cheerleading, two teams in Texas. And it's the most riveting, most human, most revealing thing I've watched in a long time. And I've been waiting for the second season for a long time. And it's amazing. Okay. Wow. Okay. I have seen that. I hadn't been tempted, but maybe now I will be. Matt, what about you? Well, this week is the 80th or would have been the 80th birthday of uh, Muhammad Ali. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's a, a very good documentary about his life called When We Were Kings. Oh, yes. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. It's a little bit off yeah. politics. Yeah. But um, it's about the rumble in the jungle. Yeah. Too fast. You're too fast. The king is going home to get his throne. Yeah, when I get to Africa, we're going to get it on because we don't get alone. So we try to get the champions of the sports world, champions of the music world. Where he fought George Foreman. Yeah. Whom, as a child, I saw... Uh, spar in preparation for okay. one of his fights. True story. I was actually in Kinshasa on, I'm trying to remember what anniversary it was. I think it was the 30th anniversary of the Rumble in the Jungle and uh, spoke to some people who were there uh, that night. It was kind of sad in that they, you know, in Kinshasa, they just didn't mark the event or kind of do anything around it. But I did speak to some people who were there and a guy who was instrumental in, in kind of bringing it to a world audience, setting up the whole broadcast infrastructure and everything. Uh, that's a great one. Uh, okay. Um, I, uh, one of the things about uh, self-isolation is you do get through a lot of stuff. Uh, so I did watch and listen to a lot of things at the start of the year. Maybe I'll go for a sort of lighter one. If anyone has access to uh, the BBC or its iPlayer six-part uh, series called The Tourist, which I would recommend. It's good entertainment about a guy who wakes up in a hospital uh, in Australia, doesn't know who he is or, or how he's got there, and gradually the kind of story unfolds. So those are three to get us going for the new year. So Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, please consider recommending it to a friend. And remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. It's always great to hear from you. The feedback is remarkably thoughtful. I shouldn't expect anything less from our listeners, of course, but it is really a cut above a lot of the kind of commentary and feedback that you get on social media. So thank you for taking the time to write to us if you've done so. Thanks this week also to our new podcast intern, Noah Zan, and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 